Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Series on the cross. Now, up till now, if you've been with us, we've been asking, how does the cross save us? Today, we're not just asking, how does the cross save us? But we are also asking, how does the cross shape us? The theological word for this is cruciform. Cruciform is what you get when you add the word crucifix, or cross, and form, or shape. Cruciform means cross-shaped. So in the next few weeks, we are going to explore how the cross not only saves us, but shapes us. The Apostle Paul actually talks about this all the time. And we're going to look at what he has to say to the church in Philippi next week. But Paul didn't make this up. He learned it from Jesus. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. We're going to look at three different episodes in Mark's Gospel, starting in chapter 8, verse 31. I'll read and I encourage you to follow along. So this is God's Word. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now fast forward a bit to chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way... They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus wasn't in that discussion, I'm guessing. (laughs) Verse 35, And he had sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put him 
in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And now let's fast forward to chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. It's the third time if you're keeping track. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> do you see a theme? Verse 36, And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one of your right hand and one of your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for me. Lord, may the words in my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer and Holy Spirit. Would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus and by the time this is over, love him more and see his beauty. It's in his name we pray this. Amen. Well, so 17 years ago, which is hard to believe, I married into the Ohio State University. <laughs> this means I am a Buckeye fan, not a Buckeye alum. And as my wife likes to point out, there is a big, 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 big difference. One key difference is that Buckeye, now this will be a big, I'm sorry, but one key difference is that Buckeye fans, like myself, tend to be a bit more objective when it comes to watching and even assessing Ohio State football. To my wife, the Buckeyes can do no wrong. If we lose, it's somebody else's fault. She only sees glory. My brother-in-law is the same exact way, except with a different team. So 17 years ago, my sister, same summer, married into the University of Miami. I know. 
So her husband might be the biggest Hurricanes fan I've ever met. When he was a grad student, he was the voice you heard from the press box during game day. So he's not just a fan of the U, as he puts it, but he's actually the voice of the U. So this means whenever our families get together, uh, there is one topic that is off limits. We can talk politics, we can talk religion, but if the Fiesta Bowl from 20 years ago comes up, I should probably leave the room. Now, if you don't know, that double overtime championship deciding game unfolded in a way that made Miami fans very upset. Sports journalists simply refer to it as the call. There was a a call that created some division, we'll say. And here's my point. People like my brother-in-law saw the interference call one way. And let's just say people like my wife saw the interference call another way. Now, how can this be true? How can this be true? Well, to answer this question, we actually have to back up uh, and return to Psychology 101. Maybe some of us remember the concept, selective perception. So hang on to that phrase. Selective perception is when we only perceive what we select to perceive. Okay? So we only see what we want to see. In other words, we don't want to see something, we don't see it. If we want to see something, we see it. Apparently there was a classic study on this phenomenon. Uh, Princeton alums and Dartmouth alums were asked to watch the same football game, and it was a historically dirty game. But Princeton fans only saw Dartmouth fouls, and Dartmouth fans only saw Princeton fouls. Sound familiar? So (laughs) apparently selective perception is a thing. And these researchers that occurred to me this week could have easily read the gospel of Mark for their research. Why? Because in Mark, the closest disciples of Jesus, his inner three, those who were at the transfiguration, Peter, John, and James, only hear and see what they want to hear and see when it comes to Jesus. So on three consecutive occasions, we heard it read, Jesus says, the Son of Man will suffer and be killed. But the disciples chose not to hear him. So let's look again. Mark 8, 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. 32, and he said this plainly. And what does Peter do? Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. So the same word is used, actually, to describe how Jesus rebukes a demon. Now fast forward to Mark 9, one chapter later, verse 31. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after that, three days he will rise. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now that's interesting. Commentators point out that the disciples usually are not afraid to ask Jesus follow-up questions. This is unlike them. So I think this is what Frederick Buechner calls an artful dodge. They heard Jesus clear enough. They just don't want to hear him. Maybe it will go away. And then look at chapter 10, one chapter later, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. 
and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, Jesus had just predicted, I am walking to Jerusalem to be killed. And so here they are approaching Jerusalem. And Jesus seems to have a little more pep in the step because he's ahead of them. And what happens is the disciples are amazed. And those who are following were actually afraid. When studying this, I was a little bit perplexed about that. Why on earth are they amazed and afraid? Because Jesus was confidently walking towards his cross. That's why. So three times Jesus says and shows that his mission is cross-shaped. It's cruciform. And all three times his closest followers chose not to see it. They had selective perception. You could say they had what German or Lutheran theologian Gerard Forda calls the glory story. The glory story is when life is all glory and no suffering, all winning and no losing, all victory and no struggle. And in the glory story, if struggle or pain enters in, we deal with it, usually in one of two ways, suppress it or spin it. But it has no place in our story. The disciples' story did not have a cross in it. Which means two things. They had a crossless Christ. And they had a crossless discipleship. First, they had a crossless Christ. In those days, Christ was not a name. It was a title. Another way to say Christ is Messiah. Messiah means anointed king. And so these disciples, like all of Israel actually, were hoping for a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed king who would come and liberate them from oppression and restore the kingdom to bring back the days of David. In fact, Jesus triggers this dream, this hope, when he describes himself as the Son of Man. Did you notice that Jesus said over and over again, the Son of Man must suffer and die and be killed? Well, that phrase is, is giant in terms of how loaded it is. Because Son of Man language comes from a prophecy in Daniel 7, verse 13, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory in the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, not one that will get knocked down by another empire to come. No, 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 an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That is Daniel 7. And so in chapter 8, when Peter confesses Jesus as Christ, right before our start in verse 31. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. When Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah, it's safe to say he largely had this image in mind. For Peter and the others, a cross has no place in this image. 
So even though Jesus defines his mission as cross-shaped, they didn't hear it. And now you can understand why Peter rebuked Jesus when he talked about being killed on a Roman cross. Because Jesus was supposed to mop up Roman soldiers, not be murdered by their execution device. They had a crossless Christ. But because their Christ was crossless, their discipleship was therefore crossless. It's striking that every time Jesus defines his mission in terms of a cross, the disciples not only miss it, but they start playing a sort of baptized king of the hill. Did you notice that? It's amazing. I have a shadowy, like a very shadowy memory of playing King of the Hill. Did you play King of the Hill? There'd be one person at the top of the hill, and then all of our friends who would sort of charge up the top and sort of try and knock each other down, and they, we'd roll down, and then we'd try to run up, and it was very fun. It was very fun. Well, that's essentially what the three disciples are doing here. First we read in 8.32 that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this comes right on the heels of of Peter's confession of of Jesus as the Christ. And we might think, it doesn't say this, but we might think that Peter's feeling pretty good. He got the answer right in class. (laughs) The other gospel writings indicate that Jesus affirmed that for Peter. I can imagine you feeling really good about it. You might have felt like King of the Hill. Telling Jesus what's up. But Jesus had to gently knock him out. Jesus rebukes Peter's rebuke. Actually says, get behind me, Satan, because Satan is against the truth. And then if we fast forward to the next section, it seems like the disciples... The other disciples see an opportunity to run to the top of the hill, right? Peter just got knocked down. <laughs> it's open. They rush. In verse 34 of chapter 9, we read, quote, They had argued with one another who was the greatest. And then in 1035, the last section, James and John, never the other two of the inner three, they change tactics, and it seems like they are like, let's play tactic. Peter got knocked down a peg. And it says here, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus is very gracious, I think. It says, What do you want me to do for you? And in verse 37, they say, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Now, who sits next on the right and on the left? Like, what are they sitting on the right and the left of? A throne. A throne, of course. And so they imagine Jesus entering into Jerusalem and assuming a literal throne. And some interpreters even wonder if James and John decided to do this because, again, Peter was rebuked. And so they rushed the hill. So their discipleship, in other words, was not shaped like a cross. It was more like a Fortnite battle royale. In other words... The disciples were living within a story, but that story was not God's story. Jesus tells them three times that God's story has a climax, and that climax is the cross. In fact, one commentator makes the point 
Oh, there will be somebody to the left and to the right of King Jesus. It's the two thieves. On the cross. Yes, resurrection follows. Jesus says so. But first, it's a cross. The story of God is cross-shaped. Now, they were right about the kingdom of Jesus. Daniel 7 holds, if you were wondering. It truly describes the rule and forever rule of Jesus. But Jesus told them over and over again that the path to his kingdom rule is through suffering and death. The cross, as it said, precedes the crown. The cross precedes the crown. In fact, scholars all agree that Jesus is explicitly echoing Isaiah 53 in his predictions. It's worth just hearing Isaiah 53 in full. And as I read this, I want to encourage you to recall Jesus' own predictions about his mission. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Now, Isaiah is describing what is called the servant of Israel. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And as I continue to read, consider this, that Jesus, as it's been pointed out, is purposefully connecting his mission to this prophecy. He is in a way supplementing Daniel 7 with Isaiah 53. The Son of Man came to do precisely what is being described here. The servant of Israel. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. So recall when Jesus says, I will drink a cup, and I will be baptized. The cup in the scriptures is always a reference to the cup of God's wrath. And the baptism that Jesus is referring to is like a plunging, is like an overwhelmingness of suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant of Israel, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his land, in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify me. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. The disciples' problem was that they did not have room in Isaiah 53. In their worldview. They only had Daniel 7. But Jesus tells us. My path. Is the path of the servant. The servant of Israel. It is cross-shaped. Now what does this mean for you? Well Jesus is clear. If you're going to follow Jesus. Then your story will also be cross-shaped. See every single time. Every single time. That Jesus names the cross. The disciples push back. And we ought to see ourselves in that. And then Jesus pushes back with a cross-shaped paradox about life in his kingdom. What I will call the paradox of loss, the paradox of last, and the paradox of leadership. So first, Jesus has us embrace the paradox of loss. In chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will So Jesus defines a cross-shaped life as one of intentional, gospel-motivated loss. Jesus promises us that when our lives are marked not by taking, but by giving, we paradoxically become more spacious in our soul. We gain life. We're more secure. We're more alive. We become more truly human, actually, the more we serve. And conversely, the more we hoard, the more narrow we become, the less human we become. Many of you know Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. You know of Gollum at least. His life is characterized by an unhealthy attachment to the ring. What we may not realize is that Gollum was once a healthy hobbit, like Bilbo and Frodo. But centuries upon centuries of hoarding and self-protection has twisted and narrowed and warped Smeagol, his hobbit name, into Gollum. It's an extreme image that Tolkien gives us of what self-centered living can do to our soul and to our life. Jesus says, though, we lose our soul when we hoard our life. But we become more alive, more in the image of Jesus when our lives are marked by giving in His kingdom. That's a paradox that we are called to embrace. How can you do that? How can you embrace this paradox of loss in your life right now? What is one simple area that you can just give more of your life away? Just one area. Trusting Jesus that it will make you more whole, more alive. More in the image of our crucified Lord. The paradox of loss. Second, embrace the paradox of last. Jesus says in verse 35, chapter 9, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus challenges us to embrace the paradox of last. Those who run to the bottom of the social caste and to the back of the social line. Those who stay behind to help, who don't climb social ladders 
who are so satisfied in Jesus, they don't need acclaim, they don't need applause, they don't need spotlight. These folks are, according to the Lord Jesus, first. And to illustrate this, he takes a child into his arms. Now this is significant. And he says, if you welcome this child, you are welcoming me. My father, you sent me. To welcome is to value. Okay? Children in those days, as in our days, frankly, um, weren't valued. They weren't valued. In those days, it was thought that children were at the very bottom of the social caste. In a sort of cold calculus, a purely economic and maybe utilitarian standpoint, they're more dead weight than they are pulling them away. And that's why in ancient cultures, they were at the bottom. But Jesus turns it all upside down. He says, to be shaped like the crucified Christ, we start to race to the bottom and the back. And welcome it. Value it. And so how can you embrace this paradox of last? Who can you notice this week? Who can you give attention to this week? Who can you welcome this week as Jesus welcomes his child? Who can you give to this week with no expectation of return? The paradox of last. And then third, we're being asked by Jesus to embrace the paradox of leadership. So in verse 42 of chapter 10, he says, he says to them, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers in this um, Roman Empire, the Gentiles, lord it over them. They're heavy-handed with their authority. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. He's talking to the disciples, his people. He says, whoever would be great among you must be a servant, even a slave. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus defines his leadership. He's the Lord of all. King of all. He defines his leadership as costly service. I know it's kind of trendy in management circles to describe their task as servant leadership. What Jesus is describing is definitely servant leadership, but it's even more radical than that. We aren't serving the Sort of get something in return. Or profits. We're not serving to sort of climb the ladder in a weird way. What we're doing is we're laying down our life in the same way that Jesus did. Leaders who are shaped like the crucifixion, leaders who are shaped like the crucified Jesus will gladly die so that others may flourish. Now, this doesn't mean that we become sort of a baptized doormat. And we're going to talk about this a little bit next week. So hang with me. Come next week. Uh, this doesn't mean that we have an unhealthy and unbalanced sort of worm theology. We'll explore this more. Note, disciples of Jesus have the highest self-concept possible. They have boundaries. They have what some counselors call differentiation. They know who they are and how they're gifted, and what their limits are. Yet they die to their preferences, to their glory story, in, other, in, in order that others around them may flourish. 
We don't lead like the rest of society. Jesus is saying, we don't lead like the empire. Why? Because we are in the kingdom of God, led by the crucified Jesus who has scars on his hands. The old, like, in God's kingdom, we have Jesus. And only Jesus can meet our deepest hungers. And so leadership, when our hungers are met in the Lord Jesus, leadership is no longer, and it can no longer be, about filling our cup. Leadership doesn't do anything to fill our cup. We don't pursue leadership to fill our cup. We don't execute leadership to fill our cup. Our cup is filled by the Lord Jesus. We have everything we need. And so we lead by laying it down, by serving. So think about your area of influence, because all of you have it. All of you have an area of influence. Your children, your coworkers, your neighborhood association. The way you lead them is by serving them. Listening well, asking for forgiveness often, cultivating and caring for them. So hope here is the big idea. Jesus says, I came to ransom. We've been talking about the ransoming cross for the last couple of weeks. Those who have been ransomed, those who have been rescued by Jesus, become lowercase r rescuers. Not because of some sick need that we need to sort of rescue others in order to feel whole ourselves. No, because we are whole, because we are free, we now notice. We become what Anglican Bishop Todd Hunter calls sort of uh, we become, in a way, lowercase rescue agents in our sphere of influence. We notice when we come alongside. We're called to wield our influence, our resources to rescue. Why? We're rescue rescuers. And we do this pointing to Jesus. And we do this because Jesus served us first. We have everything we need. And so may the Lord shape us. May the Lord shape us more and more into the image of the crucified. And when we begin to experience the life of a cruciform service, and would we experience it as the surest way to freedom? Lord, make us so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.